Greetings, Trinity. It's a joy to be able to open up God's Word and to look at it, study it, think on it, have our hearts, our lives shaped by it. We are returning back to our series in Exodus, a series called Delivered to Dwell. And so we're going to jump in here, chapter 2. Let's reread the first 10 verses, though we're going to consider most of the whole chapter in our message this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While, she, while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went, called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you work mightily uh, through all things to accomplish your good purposes. You do so because you are gracious and good and over it all. So as we come to your word, we pray that you would do a good work in our hearts. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When the Apostle Paul wraps up his 11 chapters of most mind-blowing, overwhelming, good news description of God's sovereignty and our salvation, when he wraps up Romans chapter 11, he uses these words, Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Simple, but yet profound, richly profound. God is over all and accomplishes all of his purposes throughout all of history. He works in and through all of history. And he uses imperfect people perfectly. There are no obstacles to what God sets out to do. Nothing stands in his way. All things are available for his use. A word for that is providence. Providence can seem paradoxical. That is, God using things or situations 
or people in unexpected ways to accomplish overwhelmingly surprising outcomes. The story of Exodus is an incredible display of the providence of God, and it displays the paradox of that providence. And we see that here in the birth, rescue, and rise of Moses, who would then be used by God to lead the people of God out of captivity. The paradox of his providence is on display. And in so doing, we find a couple of things here in our passage for us this morning. The paradox of God's providence in our deliverance is seen in the surprising means that God uses. We see that in the first 10 verses. The surprising means that God uses. And the paradox of God's providence in our deliverance is seen in the anticipating hope that God produces. In the anticipating hope that God produces in His people. When you start to see His providence on display, fears are relieved and hope is fueled. We'll come back to that again. So, let's look into the birth and the rescue and the rise of Moses. Let's see the paradox of God's providence to bring about the beginnings of deliverance. Let's be encouraged by what we see. First, the surprising means God uses. So we reread the beginning of, it, of this chapter, the story of Moses' birth and rescue. And so let's consider then the birth and rescue of Moses as a place where on display, like a window into the world, we see the paradoxical providence of God. First is in the genealogy. We find that Moses was a child from among the Levite family. He belonged to the clan of the Levites, the tribe of the Levites. And this family later on, later on would be um, given the work of spiritual and religious leadership of the people of God. It was a special privilege that they were given. And Moses is among that line of people. His trajectory was already accounted for in his very lineage. God, providentially, purposefully, bringing this about. Then we find some very important figures in the story of the birth and rescue of Moses. We find three women in this story. And how God uses these women in unexpected ways to bring about an incredible rescue in the life of Moses. First woman that we find in our story is Moses' mom. She worked very hard to keep him alive. In verse 2 of chapter 2, we see that she describes him as a fine child. She looked upon him and saw him as a fine child. That description, fine child, can literally mean she longed, she looked at him and longed to keep him. That her affection for him was immediate and the longing of her heart was that she would do everything she could to keep him alive. 
think most moms probably can relate and understand and know what that feeling is, that longing to keep. And so she acted according to that longing. After three months, she made a basket. Well, that's what the word is in our translation, basket. I think it would be a whole lot more helpful for us because when I think of the word basket, I think of something wicker and open and filled with potpourri or stuff or plants or whatever. Don't think of something that would be a safe place on the Nile. But that word basket is the same word for the word ark that we find in Noah's story. It's an ark. In fact, as you read the description of what she did in preparing it, it sounds very similar to like a little micro version of the big macro ark. It is a place by which Moses would be delivered. He would be rescued just like Noah was and his family. And furthermore, when you see Pharaoh's daughter finding this little ark, she had to open it. So it wasn't a wide open basket, at least that comes to my mind. It was put together to keep him alive, to keep him safe, to keep him hidden. Again, there was a terrible edict that all Hebrew boys were to be killed. And we see this mom working very hard to keep him alive. The next, oh, but before we jump into the next woman, what is underneath all of that effort and longing in that mother? It's faith in God. And we know this because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 tells us so. Consider those words. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. The parents full of faith, trust, and hope in God. Didn't want to see their boy die. And did all that they could to keep him alive. God providentially working through his people. The next person then we see is Moses' sister, his big sis. This is a fast-thinking big sister. Later, we certainly know her name as Miriam. We find that in Exodus chapter 15. She was most likely at this time between 6 and 12 years old. We know that she was older than Aaron. And from Exodus chapter 7, we see that Aaron is 3 years old at the time of Moses' birth. So she's older than Aaron, but she's not old enough to be sent out into this oppressive work that the Hebrew people were given, which would have been age 13 and on. So she's somewhere in that range of 6 to 12 with her fast thinking and her quick actions. I would lean her closer to the age of 12. But boy, was she sharp. She needed to be the right age so that no one would think otherwise. Why is this little girl hanging out in the reeds along the Nile? Her confidence and presence of mind to not only be able to converse with Pharaoh's daughter, but also to suggest that she go get a Hebrew woman to be the nurse, knowing full well that she would run and get the mom of that very baby. Brilliant. God at work in unexpected ways to bring about very surprising outcomes. 
And then that leads us to the third woman, and that's Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter looked upon that boy, knew that that boy was a Hebrew child, and clearly not all Egyptians were fond of Pharaoh's edict to murder Hebrew boys. I can't imagine too many women being okay with this. And as we saw in chapter 1 and now again in chapter 2, we see women central in seeing lives be saved. There was a risk on her part, no doubt, in bringing in this Hebrew child, a boy no less, into Pharaoh's house. Now, after the inter- exchange with Big Sis, she runs and goes and gets her mom. Just imagine with me the scene when Miriam got to her mom, told her what happened, who then had to hold it all together in a conversation with Pharaoh's daughter, a mom who's done everything she could to keep this boy alive, standing in front of the daughter of the very man who's put the edict out to see him dead. And to then be given the task of helping raise her very own child and that his life in Pharaoh's home would be his means of life on this earth. I don't think she would have breathed until she was out of the sight of Pharaoh's daughter. God is not limited or prevented from fulfilling what he promises to do. He's not limited in any way, and nothing can prevent him, not even Pharaoh's own household. God delights in using the unexpected to bring about the overwhelming. God's providence from our vantage point is surprising to us because it's totally unexpected. Yet God is over all things, holds all things together, brings about his purposes in all things in what seems like a paradox. This shows us some things about God. One, it shows us his position. To be able to bring about a a paradoxical providence, God has to be in the position over everything in order to do it. So he has to have the authority over all things to bring about his purposes. Secondly, we see that God then has to have the ability or the power to then actually put into effect what his authority says he can do. So he has to be able to do it. He has to be able to intervene, supersede, and intercede throughout human history to bring about his good purposes. And then thirdly, he needs to be present. He needs his presence involved in the, in the lives and the movements that are throughout all of history. He's not a calloused, distant, uncaring God. He's not a clockmaker who just winds it up and goes away. He is the God over all things. He is the God with all power, and he is present, caring for his promises and his people. This, this providence, this paradox of providence is to ease 
our fears, to bring relief to our hearts in a hard and harsh world. When we look around and circumstances seem overwhelming to us, and we don't understand what is going on or why, there is a God who is over it all, who has all power, who is present and and cares deeply about his promises and his people. Our fears get relief. Surprising means, the surprising means that God uses displays his providence. And then we see that display of providence produces in us an anticipating hope. If God is at work and intervening and bringing about these rescues throughout human history and throughout even our lives, then there's something we need to be anticipating, a hope that we have that lasts forever. And that's what we find here in the remainder of our chapter. The anticipating hope God produces in his people. Now, let's look carefully again, um, considering then the second half of this chapter. We find in verses 10 through 11, or excuse me, 10 through 22, um, namings that bookend the remainder of our chapter. There's a, the naming of Moses in verse 10. There's the naming of Moses' son in verse 22. And both of those namings, that bookend picture, is giving us really a picture of the Exodus as a whole. Look at the names. So first we find Moses. He's given the name Moses because he was drawn up, brought up out of the water. His name is Moses because he was drawn up. And Exodus is the the bringing up and bringing out of God's people. And then look over at verse 22, and we find Moses' son, his name is Gershom. And that name means sojourner, wanderer in a foreign land. It's the picture of the Exodus. It's exactly what's going to happen in the lives of these Hebrews as they are brought up and out of Exodus or out of Egypt, and then as they are wandering in a foreign land. What Moses experiences is what the Hebrews will experience in their own Exodus. And even more so, as you start to look into the details and circumstances of Moses' life as he's getting ready to then return back to Egypt, we see how those details and circumstances are foreshadowing what the Hebrews would experience in the Exodus. Consider these details. Both Moses and Israel are born in slavery, they're oppressed, and they live under an evil edict of murder. Both Moses and Israel have these profound water events in their stories by which they are radically rescued. Both Moses and Israel escape to Midian and to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And there, at Mount Sinai, both Moses 
and Israel experience God's presence. Moses with the burning bush, and then Israel where God descends down on Mount Sinai, giving the law, and Moses mediating between the people and God. And then, lastly, we see both Moses and Israel display doubts throughout the story, and yet God displays his faithfulness. In God's providence, Moses was uniquely equipped to identify with and lead the people of God from his lineage to his rescue to his experiences Moses underwent what Israel would soon experience God knows what he is doing even if we can't see it or understand it and it's incredible when we see the providence of God at work gives us a hope one that we anticipate with even greater fuel. And that story of Moses and this identifying with his people goes even a further step. There's even something more grand and glorious it's pointing forward to. So our hope is still yet anticipating something even more fully expressive of God's providence, power, presence. Let's look closely verses 11 and 12 of this chapter. Here we're going to find Moses is foreshadowing Christ. Moses identified with his people. He looked upon his people, identified with them. Something changed in his life when he saw them, saw the plight that they were under, and then he acted. But as Moses identified with his people, he also failed. Let's first consider verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Then he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Note that Moses looked upon his people. He saw their burden he saw their plight. He identified with them. They were one of his people. And then he moved to action. Now look at that action in verse 12. He looked this way and that. Seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. His actions were murder. And then he attempted to cover them up. It was one of those sentences. He looked this way and that. He didn't have to finish it. You know, you knew the motives were bad. So there's an aspect about Moses that's incomplete. There's something there that's pointing us forward. One who looks upon his people sees their burden, their plight, and is moved to action. But Moses' action was sin. It was evil. It was murder. Now, this Exodus story isn't an isolated story. It's in the context of the Bible. 
The Bible is one whole story. And what we see here in this story is pointing us forward to the grand story of the Bible. And that points us to Christ. Christ identified with his people, just like Moses. But instead of failing, Christ wins. Christ wins. Let's consider carefully some of the ways in which Christ identified, he looked upon his people, just like Moses. So like Moses, Christ looked upon his people. He entered into our humanity, for one. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Furthermore, not only did he enter into our humanity, but he touched it. And he touched it in its brokenness. He touched the lepers. Matthew 8, 2 and 3. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Jesus also looked upon the people with great compassion. He had compassion on the helpless. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or how about that derogatory description that Jesus wore as a badge? Friend of sinners. From Luke chapter 7, Jesus speaking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he identified with our weaknesses and has grace upon grace for our needs. Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ identified with his people. Unlike Moses, Christ didn't kill Moses killed, Christ died. And in his death, once again, we see the paradox of God's providence. In his death, in what looks like defeat, comes the greatest rescue and deliverance and victory of all of human history. Christ entered into our humanity in order to rescue us. He is not afraid or put off by our sin and our, our stench. In fact, he came all the way down into it to rescue us. God providentially working in the most unexpected ways to bring about the most overwhelming rescue. And that's it. The paradox of God's providence is that God, God delights in using the unexpected to accomplish the overwhelming. 
And nothing can stop him or prevent him from fulfilling what he promised to do. And the story of Moses and the story of Exodus, as amazing as they are, they have themes that are part of the larger story of God's Word, the glorious story of the Bible. And at the center of that story, the climax of that great and grand story that Moses and Exodus are, are foreshadowing and pointing us to is Jesus, who through what looks like defeat brings the greatest deliverance known to man. Behind it all is a God who works his paradoxical providence for good. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And as we see your most remarkable providence at display in the birth, in the rescue, in the rise of Moses, the means by which you used this imperfect man to bring about a great rescue. God, I pray that our hearts would see the themes of that narrative and the grand narrative of your Bible, of your word. And it would drive, drive us to Jesus, whom we see one who rescues us from our sin, who knows us, knows our weakness, and rescues us all the more. God, I pray that that would bring a great sense of comfort and hope in our lives right now. And that it would produce in us hearts full of wonder and worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Continue on together in worship and response. Close out with your benediction. Have a great week ahead. Stay safe. Be blessed.